0: To the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We
1: are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode twenty-five, recorded on May twenty-eighth. Optimize your journey with the Cloud Pod Center of Excellence. Welcome, welcome to another exciting episode of the Cloud Pod. How's it going, Jonathan? It's great, Justin. How you doing? Doing quite well. Uh, we are still without Peter this week, so we have invited another fantastic guest, Elise Carmichael. you want to introduce yourself?
2: Sure. Hi, my name's Elise. Uh, I live in Florida, and uh, just to, I guess, tell your listeners about myself, uh, I'm an engineer by trade uh, and work used to work with uh, both of you guys, maybe that was four or five years ago. So I was a technical lead and ran this new hire boot camp there of freshly minted testers and developers. And then I took over QA and engineering for the company. And now I work at a company called Tricentis, where I'm the VP of Enterprise Evangelism. And actually, Tricentis was the vendor of testing tools. That's how I know of them. So that's me.
1: Oh, fantastic. So is that sort of like a, a dev rel job, per se, or is it something slightly different
2: uh, what I do is, is pretty different. I work with, uh, sales and marketing to help with our messaging for our customers, you know, help them figure out what the business value is of our products and help our sales team understand that as well.
1: Well, very good. Well, we're happy to have you here. Uh, you are our first female guest, which we are super excited about. So that's always a plus as well. It's been a lot of males, uh, through the podcast, which we acknowledge. So we, uh, It's always good to diversify
2: (laughs) happy to help with the quota
1: i appreciate that (laughs) all right let's get to the new news um so the first one up for this week for aws they've updated their pricing model for aws config rules to a new pay-per-use model Uh, so this is uh 84 predefined rules that exist in aws config and effective on august 1st 2019 you'll now be charged uh, on the number of rule evaluations you run each month uh, so, if you run 100,000 in real evaluations, you only pay uh, a tenth of a penny per evaluation. Or if you have a larger volume of that, 500,000 or above, you can pay as little as. Uh, five one-hundredths of a penny. <laughs> I, can, I, I can hear you doing the maths in your head right now. <laughs> exactly. Five. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> carry the two, move the decimal point. Uh, but yeah, so anyways, uh, you will continue to pay additional costs such as S3, SNS, or Lambda invocation costs associated to your checks. But uh, this is overall a really nice change. Uh, if you were to compare it to the old pricing model, which was basically on active config rules, um, they have cost between $2 and $1 or per rule uh per region per month and then you also had a invocation charge to it as well. Um so net net this ends up being a pretty nice reduction in your fees if you're a big user of AWS Config.
2: We are not, sadly.
1: I don't know how many actually are, but uh you know overall I think you know it's always good to be more secure and these are great things that you can do to help uh, move your business forward. If you're not check out, Config, I definitely recommend it. Or there are some nice open source tools uh, from people like Capital One with the Cloud Custodian product that do similar things. But uh, this is a nice tool. Presumably, it's not a cost saving for everybody. Otherwise, they would have marketed
0: it as, "Hey, this is a reduction in cost." You know, uh, one of their many price reductions. So I, I guess there's some heavy users that they wanted to pay a little extra with this.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think that the really the bigger issue was the old model penalized you for having more and more rules, even though they may not need to run that often. Where this now gives you kind of a better model of the rules only going to run, you know, maybe once a day, but it has a large impact to your business, versus you know, you only pay for that one invocation time versus paying for it uh, for every time every region you want to have it in.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. I hope, I hope this kind of model actually spreads to other areas as well, like the um, the private certificates and the KMS keys and things, which you also pay, you know, a dollar or a dollar more per month for, even if you never use it. So that'd be kind of neat.
1: All right, well, Google uh, has said that some of their G Suite passwords were stored in plain text since uh, 2005. Uh, Google claims this is a small number of its enterprise customers uh, mistakenly had their passwords stored in this method. Uh, Passwords are typically hashed or scrambled. Uh, using a hashing algorithm to prevent them from being read by humans. Uh, and G Suite admins apparently in some use cases were able to manually upload, set, and recover new user passwords for company users, which then were being stored uh, unencrypted on Google servers, which I think is the root cause of this issue. Uh, Google has removed the feature and has resolved the security issue, and the customers who were impacted by this have now uh, been notified, and you have hopefully changed your passwords. Yikes.
2: Yeah, well, you know... It- at least everyone's data has already been stolen. So what's, what's the worst that could happen if, if it gets stolen again? No, uh, Target, I think everyone forgot about the Target incident and the Equifax incident. Actually, I got an email or actually a, a snail mail this week that said uh, all of my data from Georgia Tech was stolen. Yet I did not go to Georgia Tech. I never applied to Georgia Tech, but they had my data and it was stolen.
0: Well, hey, on the bright side, if, if somebody got a degree at Georgia Tech and they're working, then they may well be paying for your your uh, social security in the future. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> nice. Well, actually, I had this happen once to me uh, at, a, at a at a previous job, which shall remain nameless. We had a, an on-premise solution, and I didn't realize everything was in clear text until we turned it into a, a cloud solution. So we were able to like reuse the same code, which was great. But I poked my uh, my head into the production database one time and saw everyone's passwords. So, um, don't do that. Google.
1: <laughs> Definitely don't, don't do that. Uh, yeah, no, I think I got nailed by finally the home Depot, uh, breach impacted me, you know, I've been impacted by a couple of breaches prior to that. Um, and you know, you, you kind of like, well, I changed the password for that and I'm good now. Right. But then if you, if you, you were know, using your password, cause you had to have a complex password, uh, you would end up uh, basically having that password now exposed on all those sites and people just start brute forcing that stuff, which is really unfortunate. So you know, definitely, if you haven't done those type of things, move to a password vaulting solution like 1Password or LastPass and you know, try to use a different password for all your services, and that's a good protection for these type of things because I think we're going to continue to see uh, hacking and data leakage as a big problem for the next several years while, re- you know, while companies get better at this.
0: Well, Google announced their cloud data loss prevention tools at um, at Next. So you kind of wonder, are they running this internally? Is this how they discovered the plain text passwords?
1: <laughs> it's very possible that's how they did exactly. Very well you? timed. <laughs> 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 maybe there'll be a good use case story on that next year about how we used our own tool to detect we had made a mistake. Yeah, mm, maybe. That's a, that's a silver lining. <laughs> Google Cloud had a had a good blog post this last week around the Cloud Center of Excellence, and um, Amazon you know, popularized the idea of the Cloud Center of Excellence, and I hadn't really heard um, Azure or Google really talk about this before, and so um, I wanted to highlight this one because they, they did talk about it. They have a little bit of a different bend um, in a couple ways, but they say that Cloud COE can really help accelerate cloud adoption benefits in a number of ways, including driving momentum across the organization, developing reusable frameworks managing cloud knowledge sharing, overseeing cloud usage, and aligning cloud offerings to the larger organization. Um, And they've wrapped this all up in a really nice white paper. The Amazon version is a little bit different. It's a lot more around cultural change and cloud native architecture and some things that um, were not quite as highlighted in the Google version, which I thought was interesting. Um, But netnet, net, I think if you're in this cloud migration journey, Um, you should check out both the Amazon Cloud Adoption Framework and the Migration Factory stuff, as well as Google CCOE. There's a lot of really great tech content here, and I just wanted to highlight this in the podcast this week.
2: Yeah, I'm usually a little bit against uh, CCOEs or just COEs in general, but I've I found that with all these bigger enterprise customers that I've been working with lately, they kind of need them. And in fact, with this one in particular, uh, my company, Tricentis, has implemented something almost identical to this, not called a CCOE, but having a, a group dedicated towards our cloud strategy. We're actually uh, uh, two companies that merged uh, about six months ago. And so one one of the main products is cloud-based on AWS. Another one is kind of this big um, on-premise behemoth of an application that we're putting in the cloud or pieces of it in the cloud, but what cloud and, and how has been kind of a struggle. So this is something that we have kind of one team working on how we're doing it as an entire organization. So it's worked out pretty well.
0: You think the the CCOE is kind of doing for for modern developments and and um, users of the cloud what ITIL tried to do years ago, but kind of died out.
1: That's an interesting perspective. I I think you know this is just really about typically my cloud migration, right? Where I would think the ITIL Foundation and what you're trying to do in ITIL is more general, you know, ongoing best practices and things like that. Um, the CCOE, as they describe it in both the Amazon and Google, is something that you do during migration, and then it kind of changes into a what I would consider a platform shared services team or a cloud platform team. But you know, the COE is a concept, I agree with at least. You know, prior to really the cloud COE, I, I COE was a three letter word or four letter word that I didn't mm-hmm. want to talk about because it was always, you know, a lot of people doing a lot of nothing that didn't really have a lot of value, and so that was a tough, tough scenario. Yeah. It's always
0: it's always tough when when people focus on a particular tool as well and then that's that tool becomes the solution to everything. And um, that's it's kind of a worry with a, a cloud center excellence that, that the solution will always then be it's gotta be a cloud based solution. it may not always be the case.
2: Yeah. No, I, I love putting, you know, as much as we can in the cloud, but I agree it's it's not always it's not always the right solution. I, I like desktop applications. I think they're still important and it's nice and everything can run locally sometimes.
1: Yeah, talk to an accountant about running uh, Google Sheets versus Excel and how much they <laughs> they enjoy web-enabled Excel applications versus uh, Google Sheets.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: <laughs> uh, Amazon RDS uh, for Microsoft SQL Server has increased the database limit per database instance uh, up to 100 now. So it used to be 30. Uh, and so for those who are not familiar with SQL Server, uh, the basic concept is that you have a SQL Server instance, which is... Um, all of the main underpinnings of SQL Server, you know, the temp space, the disk allocation, the memory footprint, the CPU scheduler, all that kind of a SQL Server. And then you could have instances inside of that. And those are considered databases in the SQL world they're considered schemas and Oracle and, and MySQL and others. Um, but those databases, you basically only be able to be capped up to a 30. And then if you went over 30, you wouldn't be supported in RDS anymore. Um, and so by now moving this up to 100, you actually get uh, a lot more density on a single single RDS instance. And you can actually handle a lot more customers if you're doing um, you know, shared tenancy, which would be every customer has their own schema, but they're in a shared database server. And that's really what this really helps the power. And this is a huge savings for a lot of companies, particularly in Microsoft licensing costs. Um, as you pay on the physical CPU, typically for Microsoft licensing.
2: I suppose this is pretty interesting. This doesn't really affect us, but we do um, all of our Microsoft stuff on Azure.
1: So, uh, interesting, why would you choose to do Azure for your SQL stuff versus Amazon, or is there just because that's where you typically do all your .NET application development? What's your what's your multi-cloud strategy around that?
2: Yeah, well, so like I said, we had these two companies that merged. One of them was completely Azure, and the other one was completely AWS, um, and the Azure one was a complete .NET product. The other one's, you know, an Angular web Java node type setup. So it just kind of happened that way. So going forward, we'll probably keep them separate uh, in the near term, but I'll have to ask, ask that uh, the CCOE
1: Interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, typically you see your scenario quite often where you have a multi cloud strategy because of acquisitions, you know, they were on Azure, you were on Google or Amazon. And that's kind of where you kind of stay before you consolidate them up or keep them separate. Um, But what do you think about the workload of multi cloud, where you actually take a workload, and say, put it into a container and then run it across multiple clouds, um, as one big global application? Have you ever seen that or done that before?
2: We do something kind of similar. So one of our products is called Flood I.O., and it lets you do load testing. Uh, so cloud-based load testing and will distribute it for you, but you basically pick a cloud platform, so you can use any one of the, the big three, and it'll distribute it. So the product works with all of them, but I believe it's hosted on AWS itself.
1: Yeah, so that's a very common scenario I've seen, too, where, you know, yes, it can support mm-hmm. those things, but you typically run it on one or the other. But a really truly distributed application across multiple cloud vendors, which is what the what I consider to be the holy grail of what people talk about in the multi-cloud space. Um, I just haven't really seen it in, in the real world. So I was curious if uh, customers or people are doing it. And I'd love to talk to a real one <laughs> who's really doing it because I think the complexities would kill it uh, very quickly. But, um, you know, it, it'd be interesting.
2: Yeah, I've never seen one. You know, just all the disaster recovery and, and um, backups and everything just seem easier to do it just in one spot.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you can run something multi-cloud uh, so easily because the, because the application you built supports that, then surely you could equally just spin it up in a in a different cloud on demand when you need to. So you could always kind of pick the best price or the or the one closest to your customers. What's the real benefit of running in many clouds at the same time if it's not being closer to the customer?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest advantage you get is either data sovereignty, where you know you can put a data center into some place like Jakarta that has you know legal reasons to do so, um, or you know, it's closer to your end users in a country where Amazon or Azure or Google doesn't have a data center, but the other provider does. I see that being a value. Uh, But, you know, this this dream of like, well, you know, I can arbitrage EC2 costs across the different providers. And, you know, because of spot instance pricing on Google today is less than it is on Amazon. I'm going to move my entire workload there today because I'm getting the best bang for my buck. It's, It's so much complexity and so much work. I just, I don't see it.
2: I've never encountered any of our customers who do that with the same product.
1: I mean, but that's when you talk about people who are advocating, you know, avoiding vendor lock-in and avoiding all these things, and really trying to push this multi-cloud strategy. That's what they're trying to sell you, <laughs> at some level. And so that's always where I was like, I don't know where the rubber meets the road on those type of pitches, because uh, I'd never seen it either. And I, I don't like so much complexity in data and state, and where do you store state? And it, there, it, there's a lot of uh, gravity in different platforms. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, Amazon has now allowed you to. Uh, enable default encryption for new EBS volumes. This is an opt-in feature that you can enable for your account. Uh, this allows you to basically any EBS volume will have a default key uh, assigned to it, uh, either you know, the Amazon pre-built key, or if you're using Cloud HSM or KMS to do your own keys per account or per service, um, it'll create those and you can make that a default key. Um, you can override that at creation to choose a different key, so you don't have to use the default, um, but you can't disable encryption once you've set this flag. So you can, will have to have at least one of the choices of keys, but you can change it if you need to at boot time. So overall, this is a really nice uh, improvement uh, for any new. It will not encrypt existing EBS volumes.
2: So why would, why would this be an opt-in kind of option if it's about encryption?
1: There are some limitations. Why this is probably not on by default for everybody yet is that you can't launch some of the legacy server instance types, the C1s, the M1s, the M2s. Um, or the T1s uh, with these newly encrypted EBS volumes—they don't support them, and so if you have those in your account, you'll no longer be able to launch those types of services. That's weird how they wouldn't support them. I figured that would
0: be something that happened at the hypervisor layer. So does this mean it's it's a that's an old hypervisor that supports those instances versus the new Nitro system or something else? Mm, it still gets exposed to the OS as unencrypted data. So I'm like, I was convinced that Amazon were actually encrypting all those volumes behind the scenes anyway. So this kind of suggests that they weren't. I mean, it would have been easy for them because they use envelope encryption for everything to um,
1: to encrypt stuff without even telling you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's evolutionary thing, and it may be that in a year from now they say all new default accounts will have this enabled. Um, but you know, anything you can do to keep your customers from shooting themselves in the foot, I think, is a good idea too, because they've had enough scenarios where you know buckets were open to the public and the sensitive data got out of the out of the system. So. Hey, I'm going to pause right here because my dog just walked in. Uh, I'm back. Sorry. Uh, Amazon Ground Station has GA'd... Uh, and now is available for you to use if you have satellites in space. Uh, the onboarding takes a few days, though, so if you have a need to use a satellite system, you'll need to have your NORAD ID, your FCC license, and several things fill out a form, and they will contact you within 24 to 48 hours, get you set up. Uh, you select the ground station you would like to use uh, to talk to your satellite depending on the path of your satellite takes and it's just a few clicks of the button and you can now start downloading data as soon as the satellite crosses over uh, your location so really nice for those companies who have satellites in orbit that they need to talk to on a regular basis and uh, a lot of companies already have this infrastructure, of course, if they have satellites, but options now to start moving away from owning your own ground station infrastructure could save some companies a lot of money, and I, I get why Amazon's doing this.
2: I think this is pretty exciting. Granted, I don't have any professional reason to use it, but I would play with this except for it's a little pricey just to play with. It'd be neat if we could talk to the uh, the, the new satellites that were just launched by uh, SpaceX last uh, last Thursday.
1: Yeah, the Starlink, the 60 satellites they uh, they launched into space, pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, but the uh, so you know, the pricing is a little bit expensive. So if you, they have reserved and on-demand uh, per-minute pricing for this. So narrowband uh, reserved is about three dollars per minute, and wideband reserved is ten dollars per minute. Uh, if you want to do it on demand because you don't have a very large need for it, narrow band costs you ten dollars per minute, and wide band costs you twenty two. Now, putting that in perspective of those of those satellites that launched in space, I don't think the three to ten dollars per minute of uh, price to talk to them is really your biggest cost concern. Yeah, but <laughs> so. they,
2: they should they should give me a free tier. I think just just to play.
0: Is this just downlink, or is this like uh, uplink as well? I, I'm kind of unclear on exactly what this service is, is actually offering. I mean, it kind of looks like it, you you tell it what to tune into and when to tune into it and what to record, and it kind of records it, but, like, is its is it bidirectional?
1: I believe it is bidirectional, but, um, again, I'm not a satellite person, and I I don't know how that all works. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I I believe it is bidirectional. But, you know, the scenarios that are in the blog post that we're linking to here from Jeff Barr are from, you know, like national weather data satellites and stuff like that, which... You know, have a very much they're just downloading data to this ground. They're not really getting signals to change their software or anything like that from the system. So yeah, I have to have a play around this. I'm a fan of Raspberry Pi and um the uh, software
0: defined radio stuff, lots of fun little projects like air, airplane tracking and um and the weather radar stuff's a big thing as well too. So yeah, this is really cool.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's very awesome for companies that um have to do this thing. I know I know one company that has um, something very similar to this. And they have, you know, billions of dollars of investment in ground station equipment, uh, you know, and it's that, a big cost to maintain that equipment. So I, I totally understand why, you know, being able to use this as a shared service versus running your own satellite dishes on the ground to talk to satellites makes sense. So This is
0: a Jedi-related uh, project.
1: Maybe. Maybe. Very interesting. Yeah, especially since the, two, the first two regions that opened are both U.S.-centric regions. Uh, they, they do say it's coming to other global regions in the future, but the first two are Virginia and uh, Oregon. So, yeah, it might be very much Jedi-related.
0: Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the CloudPod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008. They are premier-tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud, under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod.
1: Foghorn. The promise of cloud delivered. So uh, Firecracker, which uh, they shipped at Amazon reInvent in November, has uh, published an open source update for May, which is about six months since it was open source at reInvent. Um, they were talking about they've had 87 merge commits from 30 plus external contributors into the master branch, uh, which represents a 24% uh, of all commits in that time span. So pretty awesome. They've done a ton of uh, additional investment into what's in Firecracker since it was launched, including support for Virto spec compliance, uh, multiple CPUs. Uh, CPUs without one gigabit, uh, huge page support, memory model improvements, and more. Uh, There's been over 450 forks out there, people tinkering with the code, and there's been several open source projects even that have started to integrate with the Firecracker product, including Kata containers, Unix, and OSV. Um, And Intel's new recently announced Cloud Hypervisor um, also leverages code from Firecracker and more. So overall, they uh, have several things still planned for 2019, including AMD support, ARM CPU support for Jonathan, VSOC, and several defense in-depth improvements, including ease ease of use uh, for those who are using it. Uh, So overall, a really nice uh, set of improvements to Firecracker. Exciting to see what they're doing with micro VMs. Uh, and a bunch of different use cases that these things are starting to open up in the market. I hope for some really great uh, talks at reInvent this year to talk about what people are doing out there in production.
2: I'm excited to see uh, what people are doing here too. I do, um, you know, my my company does a lot of stuff with uh, software testing and test automation. And uh, we have a lot of customers that do some sort of automation with like open source tools. And so they always have this issue where they're trying to figure out how to get enough test machines to run everything in parallel and I imagine um, there'll be a pretty interesting use case here to, to kind of set up some small instances to run them instead of containers, because containers have different problems that we encounter in testing.
1: Uh, Kubernetes has released uh, on GCP Marketplace application management operators. Uh, so these are a new set of Kubernetes operators that you can buy from the GCP Marketplace or basically add to your deployment Uh, these are basically designed to help companies leverage open source containers and apps uh, and special interest organizations to be able to publish these Uh, includes a standard api for creating viewing and managing applications in kubernetes and the one example that really kind of resonated to me because it's been a problem i've seen is the new java operator that they've developed and you know jvm's used over 15 billion devices and uh, software packages out there and JVM as a solution on virtualization works really well, but in a container, um, it can't really detect a lot of the things it needs to understand for its operating environment. right? So you do a limitation on a container can only use four gigs of memory. But the JVM doesn't see four of memory; it sees all the v- all the memory, and then it tries to allocate itself dynamically, and then ends up being killed by the Docker host. Um, so this is a nice Java operator that basically lives inside of the you know the setup and basically dynamically understands the Docker space and the cave K- in the Kubernetes space and what's been configured, and then make sure the JVM fits properly into the system, honors the isolation mechanisms, etc. So uh, I see the value of these type of things. This is actually a really nice thing that I'd like to see end up in other Docker type solutions out there, like ECS or AKS, etc.
2: I'm actually wondering how many people, you know, who use Kubernetes uh use Google versus AWS and Azure. I, I think we have a lot of customers that use Kubernetes, but they're not generally on Google.
1: I think Kubernetes has taken over the world, right? I think the question mm-hmm. I, I would imagine that almost any customer who's using Kubernetes is, is either using it on Amazon predominantly or Azure, because they're number one and two. Right. Google is number three, of course, and so anybody who's using Google is probably using their Kubernetes service. Uh, but the, the big thing is that how many of the companies are using the native Kubernetes support in the platforms, right? So are they using something like Minikube to deploy their Kubernetes cluster on AWS, or are they actually using Amazon EKS? I think that's the question, really. Mm. I think there's a ton of people using Amazon and Azure for Kubernetes. So I think they're doing it with homegrown or pre-built components from the open source Kubernetes projects that make it easy for them. Um, very few, I think, are actually necessarily using the pre-built AKS or EKS services to help you do it.
2: Yeah, that sounds right to me.
1: Uh, you know, this the big thing about Google is if you really need Kubernetes and you really want machine learning and big data, it's a really great cloud for you. But everything else kind of uh, is a little bit behind.
0: That's kind of weird to me. I mean, I mean, I, I like VMs were a logical progression from from bare metal, and then you have Docker, which is lightweight virtualization. It seems like a weird kind of hack to have to have these operators to help you orchestrate. The, um, the applications that you deploy in a container, in a, in a way. It seems like it's it highlights like um, things that could be better with the platform.
1: Well, I mean, I definitely think there are things that you would want the platform to eventually provide, but in all the prioritizations of what Kubernetes has, you know, would you why wouldn't you want to just take this fork from Google where they've developed it for you then just integrate it into Kubernetes open source versus wait for Kubernetes to develop it themselves, I guess it's the question. Because it's it's all open source software at the end of the day, so what's it matter if it's available to you from Google or it's available to you in the native open source as long as it's available to you in some method. And my argument was so compelling I silenced it, you.
0: Uh, <laughs> no, I just don't think I explained what I meant really. I, I mean, like it just seems like it's they're building these tools to to, to make up for the, uh, the fact that the platform they're providing is, is not as native for the applications as you would like.
1: Well, is it, I, I guess, I mean, this is the question of sandboxing and jailing and all that kind of stuff on Linux for a long time, right? Like this, Docker just took you know Linux core uh, capabilities and then packaged it into an easy way to use it. And then Kubernetes took that and basically turned it into something that you could scale massively as a, as a scheduler unit. Uh, which you know, was based off Borg. I mean, maybe something that Borg already did, but they just didn't put it into the open source. I don't know. If you want to follow up on that one next week, I'll let you... Uh, bring that I'm not going to use it either way, so that's fine. <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> Amazon RDS for SQL Server now supports always-on availability groups uh, for SQL Server 2017. Uh, always-on availability groups, of course, allow you to improve the availability and durability of SQL Server deployments by automatically replicating databases between two AWS availability zones uh when you choose multi-az if you this is now supported also for sql 2016 Uh, it's been that for a little while but 2017 this is new uh if you are using either 2016 or 2017 uh in the old mirroring method and you want to use this you have to disable uh, multi-az mode and go to single zone and then go back to multi-az and you'll get these uh the new version of this uh through that process so overall this is a really nice uh, improvement always on is a superior solution to mirroring in a lot of ways uh, for many companies do we get multi-master with with Always On, or is that a separate thing? No, SQL doesn't really have a solution for multi-master unless you go to sharding. Yeah, that's cheating, <laughs> indeed, and it's also very complex. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: uh, GitHub has launched sponsors, uh, which lets you pay for your o- favorite open source contributions. Uh, so this is a new tool called sponsors that allows you to add a button to donate to the project or sponsor me button. Uh, This is somewhat controversial among open source developers who uh, don't really want financial interest to influence what people will work on. But overall, I think this is a really nice uh, improvement for open source and open source development. And if you can throw some money to the OpenSSL guys, I think that's always a big win. Uh, GitHub, I have a quote here from them. Today, GitHub sponsors will be launching in beta to get ahead of such concerns. GitHub told me when I asked for comments. Through this beta, we're actively listening to how folks are using the new program. We want to better understand how the program evolves and how we can best scale the framework of the program to enable opportunities for everyone to participate in and build on open source. Uh, Which was their response to open source developers uh, being concerned about people only working on stuff that gets paid for.
2: I think this is awesome. I absolutely love this. So thank you, GitHub, for for making this path. You know, I think uh, this is a lot better than what's out there now, which is, one, a company just picks a product that they use and like and pay developers to work on it. So you already have that kind of sense of sponsorship, so to speak. Um, But also, like, if you go to some open source project that's pretty big, there's probably some home document page documentation page with one of those old, like PayPal donate funds to me button. And they're still out there all over the place. And I think this is a much nicer solution than that old style, you know, donate to me button.
1: It'd be interesting if they take a cut of the sponsorship money, cause we're PayPal, You know, know, paying a fee if you're a a commercialized entity in any way. I don't know about the open source, but you know, typically there's fees associated with those type of transactions. So I'd be curious to see if sponsors um, doesn't have that issue or what the cut is to GitHub. But yeah, I think it's a nice improvement.
2: Well, they need money from somewhere now, didn't they? Just make uh, private repos free.
1: They did (laughs) for up to three people, right? Yeah,
0: small small group. This is just Microsoft poking the Amazon bear for uh, all the bad things they're doing to the open source world. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> it definitely held a little bit like that like oh well if you're gonna attack open source we're gonna help them out and their answer is we'll let you give them money it's great yeah. but <laughs> you know, I, I look at it purely on the you know Heartbleed disaster that happened and you know open ssl and this bug and you know you find out it's two guys or one guy working on open ssl and you're like this thing is used by so many companies uh and it would be great if you know if you have value to this product that you can have an easy way to sponsor them so I think it's a nice improvement it's something the community maybe needed and We'll see how it plays out over time and if the you know, naysayers are right or not, but I'm, I'm excited about it.
2: Yeah. Do you think they'd ever do this for Azure DevOps repos? I know they kind of, they're doing a lot of the same features on both products.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, it's unclear to me how Azure DevOps is going to either be consumed by or consume GitHub because uh, it's definitely the path that seems like they're going in. Mm-hmm. But what that looks like yet, I don't think anyone's really explained to the market yet.
2: Yeah. I can't tell.
1: I mean, on one side, I think they would be they'd be foolish to kill the GitHub brand, uh, but I would. So I, my expectation is that we'll continue to see GitHub become more like Azure DevOps uh, as it continues to evolve. Yeah. You now manage your cross-cloud spend using Azure's cost management solution. Uh, Azure cost management allows you to now look at your AWS spend and eventually your Google spend. Costs can be analyzed across 18 different dimensions like provider, service name, usage locations, AZ, meter, and tagging. Uh, budget alerts can be set up for both Azure and AWS spend. And additional cost management features will be coming out over the next several months, uh, which we will keep you updated on.
2: Laughs. <He> laughs. <laughs> I mean,
0: what, what better way to get insights into your competitors than asking? your clients to share your bills with them
1: well, that was my take i was like if i if i'm a microsoft salesperson i'm salivating at the idea of oh you're gonna have all the amazon cost data so i can see if they're spending you know 20 million dollars on amazon and only spending a million dollars on asia i can now go i know exactly which accounts i need to go farm uh to grow my revenue target so yeah it's a little a uh, little interesting on that side of it but uh i mean i also see this being a big threat to people like cloud health or cloud ability who one of their big plays is if you're multi-cloud, they're the only one the only players who allows you to see across all your cloud providers. Uh, but now if this becomes something native into the cost management tooling of Azure or Amazon in the future, maybe GCP, um, that's a big risk risk to those businesses.
2: Yeah, I guess this is the optimist in me thinking, oh, this this seems nice. It seems really convenient. I
1: mean, if you were
0: going to go multi-cloud and those two clouds were Azure and, and AWS, then this might be, might be good for... The finance people or or uh, anybody really but
1: well I, d- I definitely know if i was multi-cloud and i was doing both of those two that i would look at azure's cost management tooling before i looked at aws's so <laughs> they have a tool <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh. all right well that's it for new news this week uh jonathan you're on the hook for the lightning round again because peter is not here should have gotten to record it and just send us the uh, send us the quotes in Future future plans. Future
0: plans. Oh, this is this is where Polly can come in in the future. I think reading the lightning round for us. There, there you go. Elise, are you familiar with the rules of the lightning round?
2: You know, I'm not, and I'm a little nervous because I don't know what a lot of these things are that I think you're going to talk about.
0: That's fine. Nor do we. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So these are the news items of the week which didn't make the cut for talking about it in person or in detail.
1: Unworthy, but still somewhat interesting to probably someone in our audience who would know, like to know that this existed because one of the big challenges in any of these cloud providers is trying to keep up with them in any serious way is a full-time job and so we're trying to help out all of our listeners with that use case but you know we can't talk about everything because we would be this would be a five-hour podcast if we did and there's definitely a lot of a lot of uh press
0: releases where they're just trying to keep their name in the headlines and so yeah we, we filter out the junk for you and uh this is the lightning round so I will read the title of a, a press release or a news article, which we're not going to talk in detail about, and we can make fun of it. We can say something interesting, whatever the case may be. And at the end of the lightning round, I will pick uh, the comment or the rebuttal, which I thought was the funniest or best or whatever. It's my at my discretion. Those are the rules.
2: Oh, boy. Okay.
0: AWS now allows you to enable hibernations on EC2 instances at the same time as you launch the AMI.
1: I know I I'm speechless of how excited
0: I am yeah. about this. Yay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're literally going to sleep. <laughs> t-
1: I'm t- literally going to gonna go hibernate about this right now.
0: <laughs> Amazon DocumentDB with MongoDB compatibility is now SOC 1, 2, and 3 compliant.
1: I love that every time they use the word DocumentDB, they put in parentheses with MongoDB compatibility. Just to keep you – anytime you're Google searching for MongoDB, you're going to come up with this particular product from Amazon as well, which is the most obnoxious thing they could possibly be doing to a MongoDB right now.
2: <laughs> Elise? I, I got to say something. Uh, no, oh, you
0: I don't have, have to say know, something. I'm just, I'm I, just make sure
2: I was still challenge. trying to figure out what SOC 3 compliant was because I just don't even know.
1: Oh, so <laughs> SOC 3 is um, – basically that you can put a logo on your web page if i remember correctly it's kind of the it's kind of the dumb sock uh, sock one is sock. that you know sock one is that you i i have these controls and the control okay. could be as bad as i store all my data in plain text and as long as you have that as the result of your control then technically you could be sock one uh SOC two is typically where you then they have a bunch of like standards and guidelines and things that you actually have to do to be SOC two compliant. Um, and so those are t- that's really the more valuable mm-hmm. of the compliance types.
2: Those I know. So three is the gold star.
1: Yeah, basically. And SOC one also is really important, I believe, from a am um, not a CFO, so but I believe if you are dependent on a SaaS service uh, for your financials Uh, like Workday or SAP or something like that. You need them to be SOC 1 so you can certify that the books are accurate, if I recall correctly. (laughs) So there's a lot of nuance here, and I'm sure someone's going to write in and tell me, like, well, SOC SOC 3 is actually this other thing. But uh, in the world of of IT, where we really worry about we really typically worry about SOC 1 and SOC 2. SOC 3 is a, a bonus. One
0: sock, two sock,
1: red sock, blue sock.
0: So- <laughs> Socks read doesn't, doesn't go into it. <laughs> AWS Marketplace enables long-term contracts
1: for AMI products. Continuing to allow those legacy business models to thrive.
0: Yeah, but who would want to do this? Like, why would you sign up for a three-year contract on something when you can pay weekly? It
1: seems, seems like a... For discounts, Jonathan. It's all about the discounts. I committed. <laughs> I'm committing to you I'm going to run this Django Marketplace app. For three years, what discount can you give me? And they're like, we'll give it to you for half off. And I'm like, I'm in. And it's done. So, See, that's how, it's that easy.
0: I'd buy it. AWS Budgets now support variable budget targets for cost and usage budgets.
1: So finally, all the people who are super excited in February when their bill is reduced by 2% because of you know two less days in the month, the new budgeting <laughs> feature can now fix that problem for you.
2: Oh, <laughs> that's too bad.
1: They've exceeded their budget for the word budget
0: for the rest of the show. Budget, budget, budget. <laughs> Amazon RDS recommendations provide best practice guidance for Amazon Aurora.
1: Yay. Yay. I mean, I, I, the recommendation engine, I guess, should really know how Aurora works and should be able to tell me what the right way to run it is. I would, I also would hope that Amazon would just do it for me, but you know, maybe I'm wrong on that.
2: It, it, I mean, I don't know exactly what this is, but it seems by definition that's what it
1: does. Yeah. Yeah, there's a recommendation engine in RDS that tells you things to do to your database and... Like, maybe resize it. (laughs) I would expect it to do that for Aurora, so it's just a little silly. Yes, use more RDS. I think I'm
0: channeling Peter now. (laughs) (laughs) All US Azure regions now approved for FedRAMP high-impact level.
1: Where's my checklist for Jedi? Check.
0: they got a lot of regions, too, don't they?
1: They have a lot of regions. Yes.
0: AWS Backup now supports AWS CloudFormation.
1: So I I was sort of excited because I was like, oh... Finally, I can back up my CloudFormation with AWS Backup, <laughs> but it's actually the opposite way around. It's, you can write CloudFormation code to set up AWS Backup, and I was oh. immediately less excited.
2: <laughs> I thought the same thing just now, and now I'm disappointed. I went through a whole cycle very quickly.
1: Seven stages of grief. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think this is
0: because of all the bad feedback about CloudFormation, about how they're so slow with uh, with rolling out support for new features. Now that they're twisting the press releases around, so it looks like it's the other guy's fault. Uh, it's the AWS backup team's fault they didn't have CloudFormation support.
1: I will take AWS backups for CloudFormation, though, if there's a product manager listening to our podcast. I, I will I gladly welcome that feature. Seconded. AWS step functions
0: add support for callback patterns in workflows. I love callbacks.
1: If I'm going to write a programming language, it seems like a pretty obvious feature. <laughs> so so much better than polling.
2: Yeah, callbacks are the best.
1: Yeah, this is a really cool feature. And I'm going to put a link in
0: the show notes to a GitHub repo that explains all the how to use Amazon API Gateway now supports tag based access control and tags on additional resources.
1: Oh, I'm sure you're in love with this one, Jonathan.
0: <laughs> I, I just wish they'd either not done it or or just have a press release to say, "Hey, we're changing our changing our messaging around tags." Or we need to repurpose tags to do this other cool thing because we couldn't figure out how to do it any other way.
1: There's some other tag stuff that came after the cutoff of the the list of things that we uh, we talk about in this week's show. But I was talking on Slack to some people about this, and I was like, "The, the problem is, is the more you put security into the tagging." The less ability for a developer you want to give them to modify the tags, and so you end up in this situation where you now have tagging is supposed to be this great thing to identify workloads and cost management and potentially mark servers as sensitive or not sensitive or p i whatever and then now the issue is I can't do that because if I have access to the tag, I can actually change the security permissions of what I'm doing, which is a terrible scenario so <laughs> I, i'm I'm fascinated we'll talk about it more next week, but you know it's just. I agree with you. This is such a terrible choice. Maybe they yeah, should, should
2: add something called like an ID or something that is not the word tag. Yeah. Leave tags yeah. as tags.
1: Or you have to kind of segment tagging, right? Like, does tags become, these are security tags that are not changeable by people, and these are tags that are changeable by users, right? Like, and like, but right now, I don't believe you have that level of granularity.
0: Amazon does because there are some there's some kind of concept of namespace in tags where where you, um, AWS colon or, um, and then the name is reserved we we can't create those ourselves so if if they could implement some kind of namespace controls in in the IM in the, um, policies for tagging that'd be great because then you let users create their own tags and security team create their own tags and cost tags should probably be fairly protected as well otherwise you know you change change the tag and somebody else gets the bill so yeah. But, but there's no history of tags. There's, there's no if there was a history, that'd be one thing because you could audit the history if a tag had been changed. So maybe they need more tags. That's obviously what we need more tags. We need write once tags. We need, <laughs> we, need we need sign tags. We need everything. No. More tags.
2: No. <laughs> Don't do that.
0: Don't do that. AWS CodeCommit now supports including application code when creating a repository with AWS CloudFormation.
1: Well, I mean. <laughs> I don't even know how this pattern works. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I guess if you want to have your application code tied specifically to a cloud formation and you want to have that tight coupling of infrastructure as code and application code, this is one way to solve that problem. All the bad things you could do with this. <laughs> yep. Yeah, This seems like a like,
2: really strange thing to do. I I'm, I don't I can't picture a use case where you do that instead of keeping it separate and just pull the code onto the machine or Well, it.
1: it's not like they don't have, you know, code, you know, code commit which stores the code and then you use code build to build the binary the binary you put into s3 like why why do i need this extra step where i'm actually going to put the code into the repo with the cloud for me? I, I just it makes no sense this
0: is so people can host the websites from code commit and things like that. We're crazy things like that how do you even do that, though? I mean, you're, CloudFormation is a is a zip file you upload, either at, either at um, deploy time or or you have to put it in S3 someplace else. So,
1: Is the use case maybe Lambda? Because with Lambda functions, you want to deploy them with CloudFormation, but the way you had to do that weird side load with Lambda was funky, and so this is a solution to that problem? No? I don't know. Um,
0: but CloudFormation... Uh, you can provide a zip with the content you want added to the newly created code commit repository, such as readme or sample code. I like How many people create repos programmatically? I mean, I guess at the start of a project, you may want to create repos programmatically, but it seems weird, like a, it seems weird to be
1: a deploy time. <laughs> you, say, you say that, and I, 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 I remember <laughs> specifically with Elise that we had a tool that would create a Jira project and a GitHub but, repo programmatically
2: but it was just for a new project it was like Jonathan just said
1: so we could
0: deploy a cloudformation template for every new project cloudwatch logs add support for percentiles in metrics and filters
1: I am so happy about this at the 9th.
0: Seems like a good feature. It
1: was only in probably a, a million customers' contracts about how they measure uptime SLA <laughs> or any, <laughs> any throughput. It's always at a percentile. So the fact that it didn't exist for the eight years that CloudWatch has existed <laughs> is sort of, it's sort of funny.
0: Amazon DynamoDB adaptive capacity is now instant.
1: Which is what I thought adaptive capacity meant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is it even adaptive though now? It's
1: already adaptive. If it's instant, it's instant capacity. Well, it only it only instantly provides you the adaptive amount of capacity you need. That's what I wanted all along. Of course, why <laughs> not? <laughs> Amazon Connect
0: decreases U.S. telephony pricing by twenty-six percent in the U.S. East and U.S. West regions. Great.
1: I mean, yes. If I'm wanted to make telephone calls with my Amazon account, I guess that's great. I mean, this is the first telco price cut they've ever done, though. All their telco prices are still stayed the same, but, you know, telephony, giving you a price cut. You can't forget that businesses still pay a lot of money
0: for phone calls, whereas most consumers either pay a flat rate or uh, zero.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm very familiar how much money you can spend on Twilio. <laughs>
0: <laughs> AWS transfer for SFTP now supports AWS CloudFormation and host key
1: import. Uh, so the host key import is a nice move because that was a bit of a problem if you wanted to some you know just kind of seamlessly move off your old easy 2 based uh SAP host to this new service you couldn't do that because people would notice because the host key changed but now you can spoof it and so you just violate a bunch of security but it works perfect that is cool amazon rds for sql server now supports sql
0: server audit
1: that's actually nice. Uh, I didn't realize it didn't support this, but uh, for companies that are HIPAA compliant or something like that, the ability to audit who's accessing specific tables in your database is a huge feature, uh, which is really beneficial, which might have prevented some companies from using RDS for SQL Server, actually. So this is actually a really great feature for companies that have that audit requirement.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think this is going to affect a lot of people.
0: And finally, Azure NetApp Files is now generally available. Yay! You can run
1: your legacy NetApp equipment in your Azure account. Fantastic. And that is the end of the lightning round. Let me aggregate the scores. Did you take notes this week?
0: No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know what you're aggregating then, but uh, fantastic.
0: I'm I'm buying thinking
1: time. <laughs> mm.
2: I like that it's Jedi funny. quote. It's twofer. Justin uh, talked about Jedis twice.
1: I did, but that, that, that doesn't mean I should get it.
0: Was it in the lightning round?
1: Well, there was, because we talked about Asia regions now support FedRamp High, and I said, check That's... the list for Jedi, check the box.
0: <laughs> well, I, yes, okay. That's pretty reasonable.
1: We could deem that the winner. Do you, do you I, actually, I really liked Lisa's conversation on Sock 1, and 2, and 3. I think you should give it to her for that.
0: I like the Gold
2: Star Sock.
1: Yeah, the Gold Star Sock.
2: Which I, I know I'm going to have to go research.
1: Well if you learn that I'm completely wrong, which it's very highly <laughs> possible I am. Uh please do send follow up email to me and I will f- make sure we cover that oh, next week while you're you're off world traveling.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I've done I've gone through multiple sock ones and twos and it's it's like a bad word now and I didn't even know there was a three.
1: Oh, I can give you much much worse than sock. Sock is the easy one. That's fair. Compared to some of the other compliance things I've had to do. <laughs> I'm going to give it to the Jedi. <laughs> nice. My lead in this is beginning to be pretty pretty formidable. Well, about that. <laughs> All right, so I, I think we should
0: like have an end. We should actually have a winner at the end of a quarter or at the end of some kind of period of time and then start back at zero again.
1: Well, I mean, if you do give this poly thing, you could definitely have Peter back in the competition too. Maybe. Well, thanks again for pitching in on the lightning round as usual, Jonathan. Uh, let's also move on to your cool tool segment.
0: We don't have a cool tool as such today but we do have with us Elise Carmichael, VP of Enterprise Evangelism with Tricentis, a provider of innovative automated software testing tools.
2: Yeah, so uh, you know, I work at Tricentis, so let me tell you a little bit about our company. Generally, we help customers transform their quality and automation practices by having a suite of tools spanning from things like test case management and test automation to load testing. We do test data creation and obfuscation. Uh, we do data warehouse and BI testing um and we also have like a really robust uh RPA tool robotic process automation and service virtualization that i mentioned earlier and our whole goal as a company to help mitigate risk in your products and generally repeatable processes so in doing that we provide visibility into the state of quality across the organization in like a one-stop shop so that's kind of what my company does we have tons of tools um with our two most popular ones being Tricentis QTest and Tricentis Tosca, which is a really great automation tool that works, you know, great for end-to-end testing. It's, you know, specialty is testing uh, applications like SAP or web or mobile or um, a lot of the legacy on-premise applications and things like that. So that's a little bit about my company and, and some things we do in testing.
1: The you know, automated continuous testing, how do you kind of get started with that if you're not doing, I mean, is this a, a lead off of TDD or is this a lead, you know, something else you kind of need to think about as you design software applications? How do you, you know, because I've heard continuous testing and it's really interesting to me, but I don't, <laughs> so I haven't done it and I haven't written code in a while. How do I get there? What's my What's my evolution look like?
2: Yeah, so the idea with continuous testing is really testing across the full life cycle of the product. So we have a, we even have a TDD BDD type of tool that you would use, say, in JIRA, So all the way from as left as you can go when you're writing out the requirements, you can test there and we support a lot of open source tools. So you would use something like Cucumber, that's by far the most popular, you know, left side of the testing spectrum. And then kind of on the right side, you'll have something like Tricentis Tosca where you do end-to-end testing. So with some of our other tools like our our orchestrated service virtualization, you can kind of have a stable end-to-end testing environment, which is really hard to create. Um, And so, you know, at the end of your cycle before you release and all of your products are ready to test. um, So say you're testing like a mobile app, which talks to services, which talks to some point of sale thing and some, you know, on some windows box somewhere, and you want to test the entire cycle, but you don't want to manually test it anymore. You can use a tool like Tosca. And then we also have a bunch of um, accelerators for really common application packages, um, like a bunch of the SAP tools. You can just kind of use these what we call accelerators and get ready to test it without having to write any code. So that is pretty
0: handy. So does this kind of eliminate the need to have many, many big environments stood up for people to test against?
2: A little bit. Yeah, so we, we handle all the distributed um, test executions with Tosca. So you, you you do have to set up a machine um, to run the tests. And unfortunately, a lot of these tests have to be run with an actual GUI in place. You have to have you know a proper machine set up with your, you know, your execution agents, but we handle all of that stuff for you. But we also do things like load testing and distributed load testing. So that's another thing that that's kind of a pain in the neck to scale on your own. And there's a lot of tools that do it for you. Like JMeter is one of the most popular ones, but it's really kind of a pain in the neck to scale JMeter as far as it needs to go. So we've kind of solved that by scaling in the cloud for you.
1: Can you take JMeter code and import it into your Flood product? You
2: absolutely can. So there's a couple ways you can use Flood. So one is just JMeter. You can just upload it, import it directly, and run it right away, and it'll spin up as many, we call them nodes, as you need. Um, So as many it, it actually runs in Docker, so you can spin up as many Docker containers, or it will spin them up as you need them in any cloud environment. You can also do it in your own environment if you don't want to use our cloud. Um, but you can also do something that's kind of neat with our load testing tool. We actually made a an open source application called Flood Element, and it's basically a wrapper on top of Selenium. So you can basically drive a, a browser through this tool and say run it in Flood, and it will scale running it from the browser's perspective in the cloud. So, you know, we'll see problems like you know through the web server you're making too many API calls and you don't even realize it until you run it at scale. So it's kind of neat to find real-world problems versus just hitting the APIs with uh, something like JMeter?
1: That's really cool. Actually, this is a problem that I'm having right now, actually, where you know we have a, a performance testing team. It does a great job, and they, they're really good, but they sometimes just want to test, You know, did this release reduce or improve our performance by you know some tolerable measure of percentage? And so right now, the problem is, is that they're the JMeter experts and they know how it all works. And so if we had a simpler way to approach JMeter... Uh, you know, we might be able to have our DevOps team do it, for example, or have, um, you know, our engineering team actually run it themselves or type it right into our Jenkins pipeline and have Jenkins just do it for us. Yeah. Um, So that's actually really kind of interesting. So definitely I'll check out in the future.
2: Actually, I just gave a a short keynote at our conference in San Francisco last week about that tool and how you can actually record with one of our other tools called QTest Explorer. You can record exactly what you want that workflow to be, say every sprint, um, and you don't have to know how to code, and you can directly like drag and drop that Flood Element script that got created for you into Flood and run a test and put it into your your Jenkins build.
1: Interesting. I've seen similar things with um, other load testing tools where they do like recording of your web browser session, and then you can replay it. And so it typically gives mm-hmm. you like a nice scaffold to like start with, but you have to then go tweak a ton of it. Is is how is your tool different than something like? Um... You know, some of those other types of tools that do that recording type thing.
2: Uh, so that, that is not the bread and butter of our tool. It's just kind of like a, a nice to have. But you can go in and, and, you know, take that code and edit. It's really just a, a short uh, Node.js Selenium script. Actually, it's TypeScript. Um, but out of the box, it works pretty darn well. It, it mostly does, like, click and waits. And then you can see the, the response time and everything of each API call that was made within Flood.
1: So then uh, I, I understand the agile dev testing for QTest and the Tosca thing and flood. How does the robotic process automation kind of play into that as well? What are we really doing there?
2: Yeah. So we, we really just announced that last week. Um, so it's kind of a, a really hot topic uh, in the market right now. There's a couple other companies that have gotten a lot of funding and we're like, well, we already do this and our customers already use Tosca for this kind of process automation and one thing that we had going for us is we have like 150 or so different tools that we support already with the testing tool. So things like Excel or just a terminal, all kinds of mainframes, and um, that's something we already have. So if you want to automate you know, logging into some email system, opening up Excel, pulling some data, putting it somewhere else in production in kind of like a really robust, resilient way, our tool already does that. So what we've done is just added kind of a nice UI layer to help you design your bots, um, which is what they're all called in in RPA, to help you design your bots to say this is the thing I want to happen, you know, anytime, you know, this this
0: event happens. Are you trying really hard not to say if this then that? If this then that. It's really hard. <laughs> Ifttt.
1: Yep. So does it work with any uh, desktop client then? Like if I wanted to make it create an Excel file, type a bunch of data into Excel file, save it as a PDF or something. I could make it do that. Or is it, yep. is it specifically you have to like embed it into the code? And since you don't have Excel access, it is do a it? no
2: code solution. So you're not, you're not really writing anything and you can put data into whatever you'd like, but it already works with all of those tools. Um, and if it's like a custom built tool, it works with things like win 32 applications or WPF. So it's, it's these prebuilt things and tools like SAP that are written in some other language and some other framework to like really common types of applications.
1: It's really awesome. We might have to be in touch.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. You know where to find me.
1: <laughs> well, thank you very much uh, for joining us this week. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you as always. It's always good to talk to you. Uh, where can they follow you on the internet if they want to follow your amazing insights?
2: Oh, that's a great question. You can always look me up on LinkedIn, Elise Carmichael. Um, I'm on Twitter. My name is UNC Fleece, like UNC
1: Fantastic. Well, we, uh, we will definitely have you on again sometime in the future if you're, if you're willing to come back for this fun. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, definitely have a great uh, week and thank you for joining us here on the Cloud Pod. Thanks, Elise.
2: Great. Thanks for having me.
1: And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe today on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and tweet us your feedback at hashtag theCloudPod.